This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off today, so it's just me and Helen. And we're doing archetypes. So I'll kick us off. This week, Helen has chosen Archetypes, podcast by Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. Each episode, the Duchess brings on a celebrity guest to discuss the way the celebrity guest has been portrayed in the media. The Duchess and the celebrity guest discuss some of the terms that have been used to put the celebrity guest down. For Serena Williams, it's ambition. For Mariah Carey, it's diva. For Mindy Kaling, it's singleton. The Duchess aims to challenge these archetypes. She does this by framing them as unfair and sexist, and by encouraging the celebrity guests to identify with alternative descriptive terms of their own choosing. This is presented as a feminist project. For instance, Serena Williams, a professional tennis player, feels she is often accused of being too ambitious, too competitive. When she gets angry with referees, the media picks on her. But when male athletes get similarly upset, they are celebrated for their competitiveness. Clips of male tennis players abusing referees are played. Williams tells us that she likes the competitive spirit of the male players, and she feels women should not be criticized for displaying similar behavior. She tells us that as a child, she was quiet and competitive, and today she loves being a mom. This reminds me a lot of what professional basketball fans call the new media, old media debate. A number of active NBA players feel that the old sports media covers them unfairly. The sports journalists haven't played the game, and their coverage is too negative. The players want to get rid of the old media and replace it with a new kind of media in which the players themselves are the journalists. Players and former players like J.D. Redick, Draymond Green, and Kevin Durant now have podcasts of their own where they speak directly to fans. They bring other NBA players on as guests, and the players interview each other. Sometimes a very friendly journalist appears as a co-host to help the players keep things on track, but the players own the podcasts. They decide what gets posted online. The players are more comfortable appearing on new media because they know the interviewer is another player, and the interviewer wants to help them look good. They give more honest, authentic answers because they know that if they make any mistakes, they can ask the interviewer to edit the podcast to review them. They know the interviewing player will comply so as to preserve his reputation as a trustworthy partner. The Duchess and her celebrity friends have a lot in common with these NBA players. They have all made an enormous amount of money, in large part thanks to the promotional efforts of a set of professional journalists. At the top end, the professional journalists get paid reasonably well, but they are not as highly paid as the most prominent celebrities and athletes. Both are employed by billionaires who own both the media and the sports teams. The billionaires use both groups of professionals to make a ton of money. Indeed, the billionaires have found that getting the professional celebrities and the professional journalists to fight with each other generates a lot of saleable content. Getting one group of employees to fight with another also helps keep the wages of both groups in check. The professional journalists love to say that the professional celebrity athletes are overpaid, and the professional celebrity athletes love to remind the public that the professional journalists just get paid to talk. If the professional celebrity athletes succeed in stealing the journalists' jobs out from under them, the celebrity athletes will just end up doing two different jobs for the same money. The celebrity athletes frame this willingness to do two jobs for the same pay as entrepreneurial behavior. They aim to rise above their status as professionals and become part of the bourgeoisie, 
A small number of extremely well-paid celebrity athletes make this transition. Shaquille O'Neal owns a sizable stake in Papa John's, the pizzeria. Michael Jordan owns a basketball team, the Charlotte Hornets. Celebrity athletes with smaller career earnings hope to one day follow in their footsteps. They often see the competitiveness that marks American celebrity culture in America's business culture and hope to translate their competitiveness into the boardroom. The top end of the professional class aspires to make it in business to become billionaires, proper oligarchs with, quote, generational wealth and real power. This aspirational bourgeois attitude is meant to be laudable insofar as it advances the position of the gender or race that the celebrity athlete identifies with. But for some reason, people don't seem to like bourgeois drivers. This really bothers the celebrity athletes, who know very well that being well-liked is important for brand potential. To really make it as oligarchs, they need strong brands, and that means they need the public to root for them to make it as oligarchs. To accomplish this, they suggest that the public likes or supports white men who are bourgeois drivers. It is therefore unfair of the public to dislike them for displaying the same qualities. Mark Zuckerberg is a nasty guy, but people are nice about him anyway, so why can't they be nice about the Duchess of Cambridge or Kevin Durant? Well, for one, people aren't particularly nice about Mark Zuckerberg. Many people think that Mark Zuckerberg is a rich asshole, even though he is both white and male. How about a different example? Tom Hanks remains reasonably well-liked, even though in the 80s he cheated on his wife and left her for a younger woman. Hanks had two small children at the time. According to Open Secrets, Hanks has made 80 donations to Democrats, but he never gave Bernie Sanders any money. When Tom Hanks was asked in 2019 what he thought about the Democratic primaries, he said, I think we have to support all the candidates because we want them to succeed. We want them to keep going so we see what it is that they want to say. But while Tom Hanks is just another rich guy, many people like him. Maybe they like him mainly because he plays affable roles in movies. Maybe they like him because he's a white guy. Maybe he gets to play affable roles in movies because he's a white guy. It's possible. Does that mean that we should like every celebrity athlete who harms their own family and habitually supports establishment Democrats? If Tom Hanks gets away with being a rich asshole because of racism or sexism, does that mean all rich assholes should get away with it? I'm not into responsibilizing rich assholes, but if you were into responsibilizing rich assholes, you probably wouldn't answer these questions in the affirmative. At the end of the day, Tom Hanks is just another rich guy, and Serena Williams is just another rich guy, and the Duchess of Cambridge is just another rich guy, and none of them are as rich as the people who own the companies they work for. The Duchess of Cambridge's podcast is hosted on Spotify. Spotify is owned by two Swedish billionaires, Daniel Ek and Martin Lorentzen. These two billionaires have campaigned for years to get the Swedish government to cut their tax rates. Lorentzen has personally been involved with a Swedish center-right party. Like most European parties of its type, it's focused firmly on tax cuts. The Duchess of Cambridge depends on people like Eck and Lorentzen for income. Kevin Durant is paid by Joseph Tsai, co-founder of Alibaba, the Chinese equivalent of Amazon. They all get paid by somebody. They all aspire to be like their bosses. They all want the public to love them for having these ambitions, but it's millionaires envying billionaires. In many cases, it's millionaires fighting with other millionaires over who has had it worse. Sometimes the public will click on this stuff, but not out of admiration. It's a mud wrestle, and the only winners are the guys upstairs. You see, the millionaires don't realize it, but ever since they bought into this game, the system has owned them. Even if they make it as billionaires, they won't know what to do with the money. 
They'll work for capital until the day they die, the whole lot of them. Most of them won't even be good parents or good spouses. They'll run around throwing sewage at each other until their bodies give out. A century later, no one will even remember the names they worked so hard to create. So pour one out for them, the poor bastards. All right, Helen, what do you think? Um, So I chose this because... Uh, I'm very tired at the moment, and we've done a lot of novels, which novels take quite a long time to, to you know, um, read. And listen to a podcast takes like 45 minutes. <laughs> this was out of pure laziness. Um, but also, I mean, this, this is a topic that provides so much um, conversation. Uh, you know, it's so much, it's a resource for conversation, but also it's funny that the Queen is not funny, but the Queen also happened to die, but that was also after I had chosen this podcast. So we could talk about that as well, which I thought was like, because I also wanted to talk about, um, there's this film that came out and, you know, um, actually this comes along on to what I want to say in a second. Um, the Daily Wire has got a film studio and they made this movie called What is a Woman? And I wanted to talk about that because there's a lot to say, namely that um, Matt Walsh is wrong, <laughs> but also other people are wrong as well. Um, but anyway, this was, this was just interesting to me on, on, a, on a level in terms of the entertainment industry and the ideology of the entertainment industry. And then also on the notion of monarchy in the UK. So to start off with monarchy, obviously, um, I think a lot of people find Meghan Markle fascinating because it is really a um, symbol of the clash between bourgeois values and uh, archaic sort of aristocratic values. And maybe Benjamin and I can talk about this a lot. I know that Ben has made the point about the role, quote unquote, of the, the monarchy. And um, the monarchy obviously provides the social cohesion, not only amongst those who like the monarchy, but also those who dislike the monarchy. And um, the like and dislike is a, is like a, is an interesting kind of dialectic because um, those that like also have a dislike. There's still a, there's a resentment there. There's a class resentment, but that resentment serves a purpose because even if you like the monarchy or dislike the monarchy, the unconscious resentment um makes you understand in a certain way the nature of the class contradiction and it's better in some ways to um have it all out in the open and you know i have a very funny story about a military parade and the gayest should i tell this story the gayest thing i've ever seen in my life i'm gonna gonna say it so (laughs) the more conservative the institution often the more can and um so i used to teach at this famous school Loved university, got this job at this famous school. And um, every year they have this open day in June. And one of the one of the of the open day is the military tattoo. And this school is not like usual schools. It takes everything to like just the extreme. And a tattoo, if people don't know it, is sort of like a display of what the kind of ceremonial things the um a military can do. So at this school, when you go to a boarding school, they have the CCF, which is the Combined Cadet Force, which is like a school army. <laughs> and you do silly like army things. I had to do it when I was at school. I was in the Marines. I had to do all sorts of stupid tank driving and staying up all night in fields and stuff like that. And it was funny because it was to a certain extent like a few hours on a Monday afternoon where teachers could suspend reality instead of like force you to do press ups in a really sadistic way. But anyway, um, so at this school, 
there were sort of boys flying helicopters and landing it, people driving tanks around. The head of the army was there to sort of like, you know, witness it or whatever. But the funniest thing that happened with the school was uh, right by Windsor. So Windsor is really like where the Queen lives. And in Windsor, all the guards regiments, not all of them, but like a lot of guards regiments are based in Windsor. And guards regiments, because they do not only like actual military roles, but they do those ceremonial stuff. And there's lots of horses involved. <laughs> so um, they have all these horses that live in Windsor. And at a certain point when they're too old and fat and, you know, rickety, they get shoved off to the school CCF. And so um, the boys were doing this stupid horse thing where they were like doing, you know, like a weird, silly military dressage thing. And this either, and I think I knew who it was. So it was either the most subversive thing I've ever seen in my life, or it was just the pinnacle of this sort of like conservative, repressive world. But basically, it, I, I mean, I have other hilarious stories like this that involve this kind of dynamic because I've witnessed this kind of stuff a lot of my life. But they did it to music because you have to have some music with Jessard. And the teacher, some teacher, some fucking clueless teacher, I think they were clueless, picked two songs for them to do their horses to, horsey stuff to. And the first one was a song by Natasha Bedingfield that had the word horse in it. And the second one was Only the Horses by the Scissor Sisters, which, if you know the Scissor Sisters, is the gayest, gayest song. The gayest song ever was <laughs> there in the middle of these posh parents. Um, anyway, but the point being is these, it's not like these, these things are purely to be taken seriously. They are ridiculous. You know, the whole thing is ridiculous. And almost that's the reason why it works. Zizek made, wrote an essay about, um, the potential for ceremony and all this kind of stuff in terms of a left wing project, just because the royal family was tied, has been tied to, um, British empire, um, and negative things such as that doesn't mean that we cannot have socially cohesive. So he was writing in response to the celebration of William and, you know, William, um, Harry and Meghan's marriage, but that we could have, um, you know, these sort of state, um, moments where we celebrate some kind of cohesiveness and collectivity. And why not? It doesn't have to be tied to something, um, negative. And at the same time, so at the same time that we, we, you know, the state in 20th century analysis of capitalism, um, often determines that the state in and of itself is the issue with capitalism. As we've seen with the erosion of the state towards capitalism, that's not necessarily the direction that the critique should take. The critique, we might have a state that is tied to good values. And in fact, a state is potentially the strongest bulwark that we might have against the ravages of capitalism or should be an institution that protects the people and governs redistribution, for instance. But it's interesting as well. So with the, with the death of the queen, we can talk about this soon that there is, of course, you know, um, a passing of a certain moment and some people might be celebrating it given what she represents in relation to the oppression of people around the world. We might also find it interesting to suggest that the queen oversaw the end of that world. So she transitioned to a world that people may be on one level if we abide by this one-sided critique of capitalism is a positive thing. So the end of empire. 
But of course, empires have never ended. They've shifted their appearance. Um, and we now live in an epoch of corporate Chinese and American colonialism. So it is not enough. And this is what we were talking about, I think, when we did the podcast last time, I was talking about it's not enough to critique. We have to do a critique of the critique. And the critique of the critique should get us to a point of not only reactively responding to a phenomenon, which will inevitably, because of the nature of subjectivity and how it aligns with the negative dynamic of capitalism, will always be tied to capitalism as well. And unless we critique that critique, we can't get to a more emancipatory political economy. So that's one thing. And the second thing I wanted to say was just in terms of this sort of like woke content, obviously this Spotify deal was made a while ago, I think maybe 18 months ago. And um, the, the, the Sussexes had, you know, many millions given to them. I don't know if it was 80 million pounds or something. And so far it's been a couple of podcasts and there are all sorts of executive producers on this. Who's, you know, I don't know if these people are salaried as well. So it's, it's an obscene waste. Um, and by the way, there's another point about waste and ceremony and monarchs and all that kind of thing we can talk about um, as well. But so, I mean, that's first of all, like capitalism is not utilitarian in any way. But um, but the thing is that this as well has not had good responses. So not only from, you know, normal people who maybe don't buy into woke um, values, but also um, from uh, professional class journalists, there have been very negative responses to this. And it's almost that, you know, that the woke cover story no longer works because capitalism still, you know, despite the cover story and getting all of the nice representational what have yous and la di da di da, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So eventually it runs out. Um, but also, you know, there is at the end of the day with capitalism uh, an imperative to make money. Yes. And we've talked about this a lot. I think there's too, it's too much to get into in just this opening bit. We can talk about it later. Capitalism relies on a certain death drive and destruction, which I think in the entertainment industry, woke ideology plays into. For, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the idea of like aspirin costing nothing, dating apps not working because in order to sustain profit, you have to make sure that the product fails. So there is something about um, the negative aspect of woke uh, entertainment that um, is necessary to capitalism. But at the end of the day, the premise of capitalism is that profit has to be made. So we've heard this term go woke, go broke, whatever. But it is there is a reaction now within the industry of turning away from woke content. I don't know what this means, but I don't know whether um, the kinds of deals that um, the Sussexes were getting a few years ago would be possible today given the fact that the woke question has run out. Um, but we can discuss that too later on. Yeah, lots going on. I didn't mention at the top, as I probably should have done, that, of course, we are aware that the Queen has died. The topic was picked before the Queen died, but, of course, these things do fit together. I recently talked about the Queen a little bit on Sublation's podcast, and I said a couple of things. One is... There are really only three responses that you can have during the period of national mourning. You can be sad, rude, or silent. And there isn't really a possibility of something more nuanced or dialectical until the period of national mourning comes to an end. And then there's an opportunity. But if you try to have 
some kind of dialectical engagement about the queen during the period of national mourning, you just come across as rude. And so most of the people who want to discuss the monarchy as an institution are just coming across as rude and not getting anywhere politically by doing that. So I see it as kind of a, you know, an example of you know, either it's just expressing feelings, it's not actually political action, or it's badly, poorly strategized, poorly thought out political action to be trying to have a go at the monarchy immediately during the period of national mourning. I, I think that when it comes to the monarchy, it's, of course, something that is, should be criticized, and it's useful to criticize it to left-wingers. The monarchy helps to highlight uh, the class system and the way the class system works. Uh, in the United States, where there's no monarchy, the class system is much less visible in large part because there isn't this symbolic figure of the rich that everybody can throw eggs at. So... I, I think there's some usefulness in criticizing it. At the same time, if the if your politics becomes about abolishing the monarchy above and beyond doing that as part of accomplishing any larger political agenda, if it's just republicanism in the narrow sense of no monarch, but otherwise you have representative democracy, liberal capitalist representative democracy, the form with which we are generally acquainted uh, that would be a move to Americanize the United Kingdom rather than to do anything to make it left wing. Uh, that's not to say that the whole Republican tradition is bunk. I certainly don't believe that. But certain strands of the Republican tradition are bunk. Those that only are focused on abolishing the monarch and who think that the, there's something wonderful about the United States simply because it lacks a king. But it's funny because this is this sort of um, deep you know, who takes monarchy at its word is falling into the lie of monarchy, right? That it's sort of like, if you can just sit in a facile way, be like, oh, it's not fair that we have this um, queen or what have you, that it's, you know, she hasn't deserved it. This, as you say, it's not, it, that's not a left-wing critique in any way. Um, having, having something visibly to brush up against, to perpetually be aware um, to be motivated to redistribute, you know, that's, that's different, but to be like, you know, and, you know, I should be, why can't I be a monarch? <laughs> the, and I think this is again with the, the Megan versus, and she actually said this, I think in a, I, something recently that she, she now doesn't think that the issues that she faced in um, the United Kingdom were a result of her um, race, but rather that she was American. And I think, you know, this is, it's a very different, notion of um, desert <laughs> because you know in a system like this which is obviously unfair you know that you are burdened with that unfairness when you are unfairly accidentally chosen and this puts you in a position of responsibility whereas um, obviously in in capitalism the idea is that you are fairly chosen when you are also unfairly chosen you are equally as unfairly chosen yeah, I think one of the things that this reminds me of is, you know, it used to be a rule in the UK that if you were a member of the royal family, you had to marry someone who was also of the landed aristocracy. You couldn't marry someone who was a commoner, for instance. And that rule has been broken. And it is broken in more and more overt ways. You know, at this point, not only can you marry someone who's a commoner, you can marry someone who's a foreign commoner. Uh, and I think that Often when that rule is discussed, people assume that it's just a classist rule or a xenophobic rule, 
It's really a rule. The, the purpose of that rule is to ensure that anyone who marries into the royal family is sufficiently familiar with the norms of the aristocracy to be able to be a working royal and not have a mental breakdown. Because if you're not of that class background, it's a lot of norms to learn very quickly, let alone with the level of attention and scrutiny that that family gets. And so in many ways, I think that rule was a kindness to people who were commoners uh, who might have wanted to marry in who really could not possibly know. I mean, none of us really can know in its fullness just how difficult it is to marry into that family. None of us can really grasp it unless you are you know, of that class background uh, and you've traveled in those circles. It's And even then, I mean, anyone who's in any other aristocratic family is not under the gun to anything like the same degree that the royal family is under the gun. Because, yeah, the irony is that the person, because, okay, f- first of all, this is not to be to say this is a pro-monarchy podcast because it's it's only, it's only uh, maybe interested in the you know this philosophical implications and political implications of monarchy you know we're not saying like there should be a queen end of it i i don't think i mean i'm very critical of the monarchy obviously but um but to you have to understand what what it's doing but interestingly so um mega i'm oh, no, sorry kate middleton obviously is a commoner but in terms of the monarchy she's possibly the most successful imports to the monarchy in a long time and and uh wessex the earl of wessex wife the countess of wessex sophie something she's like a works in pr she's just a normal she's a commoner as well that those two women are the most popular royals in the uk and they are commoner imports and princess diana who was an aristocrat and was of sufficiently sort of blue-blooded background, really ha- didn't have the values. But the the thing is, of course, that in a way, um, having someone like Charles as the king is better from a left-wing perspective than having someone like the queen, who is too good at it. <laughs> yeah, having a, a monarch that's a bit disreputable helps people to criticize the class structure yeah, you know, if people think about you know, the the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution, these revolutions come off because the monarch has become a bit disreputable. It's a one of the conditions that facilitates that. We don't see revolutions of that kind in republics, uh, in in modernity. The United States you know, doesn't have that kind of history. But but also, I mean, so if it went straight to. William and Kate, would they be too good and they might sustain the monarchy? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, I don't, think, I don't think William is as good at it as he seems to be. Uh, I think there are, and this is not to be mean about William, but I think that growing up in the generation that William and Harry have grown up in just makes it more difficult to think in the kind of way that you have to think to pull off being liked to the degree that Elizabeth was liked. And even with Charles, we see that even being in your 70s is not like being someone who was an adult or near near enough to an adult during World War II. Uh, your sense of uh, duty is going to be a lot stronger if you've been through something like the, the World Wars. Uh, the, the sense of togetherness that facilitated Queen Elizabeth behaving in this very dutiful way, in this very constrained and reserved way, uh, cannot be transmitted to people born in more comfortable circumstances. That's not to say that Elizabeth was born in an economically uncomfortable situation, but she 
she lived through a nationally uncomfortable period that brought the whole country together in a way that facilitated a lot of substantial reforms like you know, the creation of the National Health Service. Uh, that experience is just not fully accessible to royals of these other generations. And that's why I think Elizabeth, it's not just that Elizabeth is loved relative to the monarchs that will come after her. I think Elizabeth was loved relative to the monarchs who came before her. If we look at the monarchs before Elizabeth, uh, the Georges or uh, Edward or uh, even Victoria, I don't think that they became uh, in anything like the same way these beloved figures. I think oftentimes when people think back to Queen Victoria, they project elements of Elizabeth's image or PR onto Victoria that I, I'm not convinced Victoria herself enjoyed. In her, certainly people were deferential and respectful to Queen Victoria, but uh, the the way that Elizabeth is treated is, I think, unique among monarchs. I don't think there are many monarchs in many at many times in history who have had the kind of relationship that Elizabeth has had. In part because Elizabeth did not exercise political power, did not really even threaten to at any point in her reign exercise political power in any kind of direct, uh, observable way. I mean, the most significant crisis that the monarchy was involved in during Elizabeth's reign that I can think of would be the Australian constitutional crisis in the 70s, when the governor general, who is meant to represent the queen, uh, forcibly tossed out uh, the left-wing uh, government under, under Gough Whitlam, uh, obstructing and preventing uh, Whitlam from pursuing further reforms. Interestingly there, the governor general worked with uh, the upper house in Australia. That upper house ra runs on proportional representation. So it's like a reformed house of lords. Because it runs on proportional representation, the Australians view it as more legitimate. So it's given more capacity to block the lower house than the house of lords in the UK has. And so as a consequence of, of this, the proportional representation chamber worked with the monarchist chamber to defeat the first past the post chamber, which was the chamber that had uh, the left wing government in it. Uh, all that said, the queen herself, uh, as far as I understand it, did not instruct the governor general to behave that way. The governor general acted on uh, his own initiative. Uh, but if there were no queen, then there would be no governor general, and then it would have just been a showdown between those two houses, assuming no further revisions to the Australian constitution beyond abolishing the monarchy. So you know, that, that, I think, is you know, the best argument for getting rid of the monarch is that in some instances, governor generals appointed by the queen do things like that. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, they always risk, obviously, they have to countersign the will of the people. They always risk they're at the behest of you know people's will but um it's interesting because like charles to me you've spoken about this a lot is like the pure older boomer mm -hmm. you know, the hippie mm -hmm. boomer he's a classic 70 year old <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah it is the older boomers are quite hippie yeah they don't make 70 year olds like they used to it's a different kind of thing now uh, you know you think about the queen at 70 it was just a whole different whole different vibe yeah yeah uh, and so I think that will have its uses, not because it will lead to abolishing the monarchy, which we should all be desperate to do as soon as possible. I'm not trying to Americanize the United Kingdom, uh, but I do think it facilitates uh, you know, a reminder that economic inequality is not a good thing. And large amounts of resources and power in the hands of oligarchs uh, is a problem. 
and not something that people should just cheerlead. And the government that is in right now in the United Kingdom is certainly interested in lowering tax rates, turning the country into a tax haven and having it play host to a bunch of billionaires from all over the world. It's something that people should be thinking about. And maybe Charles will help people think about it. I know we we are becoming more like Ireland, you know. It's uh, and we have yeah the, the United Kingdom. I mean, it's interesting because being in the UK right now, it feels weird. Not that I'm you know have any emotion about uh, what's happened to the Queen, but um, it feels it feels strange and it feels significant as an indication of the fact that we live in a country that is in decline, which was already obvious, but this obviously just represents it, and the decline is obviously towards. Um, becoming, you know, more and more of a corporate colony. Yeah, this is something that uh, also I think part of what makes Elizabeth so significant to so many people is that every person who has any kind of affection for Britain, whether it's Blairite Britain in the 2000s or Thatcher's Britain in the 80s or post-war Clement Attlee, Winston Churchill Britain, whichever version of Britain you like, the Queen was there. And so the Queen has become symbolic of all of the Britons of the last 80 years that anybody may have liked or anybody may have thought existed in their own mind, even if it never really existed. And so the death of the Queen unites all of these people who miss some version of Britain for a brief moment, even though the versions of Britain they miss are radically different because the Queen did not meaningfully create the form of Britain that exists. She was there while many different things occurred. Yeah, no, absolutely. How she was quite old, ninety six, quite yeah. old. And uh, yeah, she went out. She had some meetings a couple of days before she she like signed in the new prime minister or whatever, our new shit prime minister. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it is. It's very. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting moment. But the podcast, and I like the way you you put it in terms of the bourgeoisie. You know is slave to something also, which is obviously capital. And it it's that I I find that listening to that podcast humiliating. It's it's a bit humiliating, <laughs> you know, that what what one has to um I mean so we can talk about something I did want to talk about was the 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 waste in capital in capitalism and the um the death drive because this is not obviously um viewers i i i do a lot of annoyment watching and listening so i'm driving the numbers so i'm probably guilty and i feel like a lot of us um watch things cathartically so we're driving the numbers in a bad way um but don't individualize that don't responsibilize yourself for the performance of the archetypes podcast it is not at all your fault that that podcast exists just because you add a little statistic to it that does not make it your fault don't buy into that market logic megalomaniacs want to believe we have some influence but no you're right but like it's interesting to me that this i think it the fact that it was so delayed um probably indicates that there was some second second guessing of this and I know from my being working in the entertainment industry that it is not um, that that studios aren't seeking to make woke content. That's not to say that they might not make some other version of wokeness, but the the conscious reason is 
that we're alienating a huge market of people. Well, one of the things that uh, pops up here, this is an incidental thought of mine, not necessarily super well developed, uh, but there's a little bit of a tension between people of this particular background who want to use kind of the woke stuff to paper over what it is that they're doing and people who want to use the green stuff. I mean, Charles is very green. Green, very green. Very green, right? And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a while back, there was uh, some protests about a new uh, Keystone XL oil pipeline in the United States. And it, the pipeline was running through a Native American reservation. Because, of course, anybody who knows about the American reservation system, the reservations all are on land of low economic value. If the land turned out to be of high economic value, uh, then the Native Americans on it were moved somewhere else. So uh, the land that Native Americans are on is almost never economically developed in any you know, serious way by the state. But sometimes it happens to be you know, kind of in the way. So uh, they were building a pipeline and they needed to kind of have it go you know, uh, near or through the reservation. And, and there were worries or concerns that leaks from the pipeline could disrupt or contaminate the water supply in the reservation. Right. So, of course, you have two different groups of protesters who come out to the Keystone XL protest. You have kind of woke indigenous rights protesters, and then you have the green protesters. And they both want to stop the pipeline, but for very different reasons. And you'd think that they would just straightforwardly form an alliance and work together. You know, they're the left, right? You know, or, or at least, you know, that's how they conceive of it. That's not what happens. Instead, they get into a very passive-aggressive tit-for-tat over who owns the protest. And eventually, the uh, Native American tribe uh, asks people who are coming for climate reasons to stay away. It's interesting. It's very interesting because I, I have noticed as well, and by the way, we're going to do a B-side on another, maybe yeah. if you're up for it, social media phenomenon, because there's all sorts of, I've just been finding social media so right now, like there's so many dynamics that like they say, you know, also when you notice something and it's like you, you notice a brand of car and suddenly all you see is this brand of car. <laughs> so, so again, with every like day of its social media, I'm like, I'm seeing a lot of like humble bragging today. And then another day we're like, I'm seeing a lot of like weird act individuals acting like celebrities. Um, but anyway, um, I've noticed on social media that, um, there is a greenwashing critique of greenwashing. So there's a vegan critique of greenwashing. So it's almost like the anti-woke critique of woke. But this happens as it happened on the left as well. And I did notice sort of in 2021 and is a big thing where it's like, oh, I'm woke on woke. I know that wokeism is stupid, but I'm a real leftist. But then the leftism itself becomes a cover story for a lack of understanding of capitalism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've noticed this. So you have people who are saying that they're not woke in the neoliberal sense. They're woke in a genuinely, you know, say anti-racist or left-wing sense, or they're not, you know, green in the neoliberal sense, but green in a genuine left-wing sense. It's still the case that they're centering in their politics, cultural issues or climate rather than domination of the working class. I know. Yeah. And what, what I noticed, like, even in sort of like 2016 or whatever, is that so you had a lot of woke stuff. You had non-woke people, quote unquote, who were woke on their own identity. So it would be like everybody else, you know, is fetishizing this, that, and the other. Except when it comes to me, I as X identity, yes, I do experience blah, 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 whatever, which is interesting to do with the nature that we, way in which we perceive reality. But yeah, no, it's, it's a sort of like, I'm 
I know that fast fashion is bad and that Shein or whatever doesn't pay its workers and and H&M is using greenwashing to blah, 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 blah. But I am an online vegan influencer with a million followers who purports that we can overcome capitalism by individualizing, changing our diet and basically creating a new obstacle. But but all it's doing is creating a new obstacle for capitalism to overcome and, you know, make product, you know, individualize responsibility, make products, blah, 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 blah. So um, commoditize. So it's, it's really, it's a tendency that we always have to be like, to make, well, it's to commodify the critique, right? And we talked about this in terms of the commoditization of lack, because can, can we say that you can't commoditize actual lack? A philosophical lack, I don't think you can, but you get on social media so much of a, um, a wholeness in lack that if any kind of promise, any kind of promise, even if it's a promise where you're like, no, 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 heads up, I'm not like the other promises, it's still a promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, uh, you know, I was thinking about the way that people talk about freedom and the, uh, you know, there's a tendency for a certain kind of, of left-winger to frame freedom as, as a kind of subjective state and to not tie it to material conditions and to position this as a left-wing argument, a kind of an attempt to kind of flip the ordinary understanding of freedom against itself uh, without actually critiquing or going beyond it. Uh, and I, I see this a lot in kind of left-wingers who are excessively influenced by Foucault. Left-wingers who are excessively influenced by Foucault uh, are over-centering you know, the, the, uh, the idea of being kind of free from uh, power itself, which, of course, if you take, yeah, you can't be free from power itself. Uh, power is, is, and indeed, to some degree, this is Foucault's point, uh, power is everywhere. But there is also at the same time in Foucault a, a seemingly latent desire to in some way challenge it. And so, at some points, Foucault seems to be purely descriptive. At other points, he does seem to have this kind of neoliberal desire to, to get the individual out from under it somehow. And in that case, when Foucault is doing that, or when Foucaultians are doing that, they're treating the individual as, as an ontologically primary thing, as something which stands outside the process of dialectical, dialectical discussion that we otherwise have. The individual is a concept which emerges at a particular conjunction in history for material reasons. It comes out of capitalism. And so if you take the individual as primary and reify it and treat it as the fundamental uncaused cause, that in some way forces the whole theory to be a capitalist theory, pretty much regardless of what else you then try to build on top of it. It will, it will turn back toward the same source. It happens, it happens with so many theories. And of course, it's like, to an extent, this is the nature of logic, right? You, you have to like, well, somebody comes up with a theory and it's a new theory or whatever, but there are more theories that tend more to being commoditized than others. Like Deleuze and Guattari are real examples of this. Um, and obviously there's, there's a, there's a facile reading of these thinkers, but it tends to, tends towards this sort of anarchic, um, promise and dissolution thing, which is basically what capitalism wants. But even, you know, there is this point as well in 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 Marx, and Marx is possibly like the least person that this applies to, but maybe even a little bit, where um in a sense there there is this idea that like everybody wants an an an, 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 an equality of equalness. 
interested in a utopia of equalness. Like if you ask the most like capitalist conservative Christian what their vision of heaven is, it sounds like a communist utopia, right? Like everybody gets what they want and all this kind of stuff. But of course, that's not, that's a very facile reading. Marx and Marx also no, critique yeah. Marx and Engels critique the concept of equality as a bourgeois, you know, something which distorts and causes us to misread it. You know, I, I think that something something valuable with Marx is that Marx doesn't just take the kind of German idealist notion of freedom from you know Kant and Fichte and Hegel on down. He also is influenced by Roman scholarship on domination and the emphasis on the material relations that produce the relation of subservience. And that is what really, I think, makes Marx interesting and distinct from a lot of those other German idealists. And when people forget that Roman inheritance and they try to read Marx purely through the German idealist tradition, then Marx just turns into uh, you know, another one of these freedom theorists that you can read alongside anarchists. And, and Part so of the issue is that some of the people who read Marx in this way because Marx is the person that is least readable in this way. They sort of get the cover story that, oh, it's Marx, so and it is about equality, but actually there's so many, and this is why, you know, there's a, the non-woke, quote-unquote, leftist that is highly, highly capitalistic. And I don't know, maybe this, it is interesting, there is, there is going to be a phenomenon in the entertainment industry where we look at workers and celebrate the hardworking man or woman, that this is a thing that's happening, which... Maybe it will be a positive thing, but is this just another way that we commoditize? Um, but, and also is it a symptom of the fact that there's so much, so many people who don't have solid jobs that actually to have at the promise of a good kind of like steady, you trade, you know, it's like that's something that's like aspirational. Um, but yeah, you get this, you get this sort of, you do get this utopian um, reading of Marx, which obviously is critiqued by Marx himself, but there is a point that I was going to say in relation to a misunderstanding of communism as well. That like, you know, this, this, this version of communism without contradiction, which communism also would be contradictory, um, is capitalism's dream. Yeah. 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 Zizek talks about that in, uh, in uh, Absolute Recoil, I think. Uh, yeah, that the kind of the first revolution is an attempt to all in one go try to get somewhere that you can't get all in one go. But I think in in Marx himself, there is not to there there are passages in Marx that can be read in that way. But I I do think in in Marx himself there is also this emphasis on continuing need for dialectic. There, there is the hypothetical com the idea of communism separate and distinct from socialism. I think has caused a lot of people a lot of confusion. Because it's led a lot of people to think that there is some getting to that state that is described. But that state that is described is it's kind of like Plato's uh, form of the good. It's not something that you actually realize. It's something that you were in a permanent dialectic with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes, totally right. Um, but it is interesting, this sort of um, this mis misunderstanding Oh, okay. Well, the, uh, yeah. I mean, this we've talked about this a lot, but so in terms of this, let's say some people are very happy that the queen has died, um, and, and people are maybe not happy that the queen has died for the same reason, but that some people might be happy that the queen has died because it represents the end, or you know, they might she might represent a sort of a figure that traumatizes people who've been colonized or something like that. Um, but of course, when an issue is at its end. So let's say the kind of colonialism that we're talking about in that situation, it's very easy to identify 
the dynamics precisely because the perpetrator is no longer in charge and therefore no longer controlling the narrative because by definition you never hear the voice of the victim ever so the thing is you know when when because if it gets to a point where a victim i mean obviously the legal system tries to tries obviously it can't handle reality um completely but like if somebody's truly a victim in a power dynamic they will never really have their voice heard in the way that they should so it's very easy to um see a dynamic that was true in a past order but what we tend to do to make ourselves feel good is to import that cathartic understanding think it applies today and completely misread what's going on today and of course if you then say you know, a critique against that might be like well you're denigrating the experience of these people and it's right that we critique that of course it's right that we critique that kind of system that's terrible but also at the same time we can't let it be a way to distract what's going on today which is very the thing is it's the same as in if we use a marxist lens we can definitely understand it but it's more difficult to get a hold of because we're all libidinally invested in sustaining this system and this system is a corporate colonialism Basically. Yeah, yeah. It's always easier to, you know, the Isle of Minerva quote comes up again and again. It's always easier to describe something that no longer is in force. The stuff that's going on, you know, that, and that's part of why I think people are attracted to some of the current events stuff that uh, I've done with, with people. Because when you're analyzing events as they've happened or soon after they've happened through this kind of lens and getting through in some way that, uh, that fog, that can be valuable to people. I think when we were doing what's left, we we try to do some of that. Yeah, I know, and it's it's you know it's you see this it's it it doesn't just happen in the sort of like cottoning on to British Empire two hundred years too late or whatever. It happens, you know, with people like AOC that people are kind of realizing like oh, people like Hillary Clinton, you know, suddenly everybody is pro Bernie in twenty twenty, yeah. and it's like wow, guys. But of course, by the time you <laughs> by the time you can catch it, it's past the point at which. Uh, by the time enough people can catch it, certainly, it's past the point at which it does any good. The, you know, the moment when you know, somebody can really do a lot of damage to you is the moment when you don't see that they pose that kind of threat. And so you're not able to do anything about it. What do you, what do you call it? You know, in the Bible, um, you're the prophet, not, you, are not, you can't be a prophet, a prophet in your own land. You know that thing, that quote, when you're too close to reality and you point it out, no one's going to listen to you. Now it's going to want to hear it. Um, it's like the there's a phrase that I was trying to find yesterday, which is I've heard it a lot in the last couple of weeks. It's like the something of the pioneer. It's like the backlash that the pioneer experiences. <laughs> you're, ten, uh, you're ten years too early. Ten no years one, too early. No one wants to hear it. It's too traumatic. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's always a problem. And of course, under capitalism. Um, well, it's like the the people who opposed the Iraq War at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the fact, nobody goes, oh, you guys were so right and so clever for having opposed the Iraq war at the time. Let's maybe listen to you next time. They go, you were right, but at the wrong time, at a time that makes us suspicious of you and your motives. I know. (laughs) So the fact that you had the right position about Iraq actually makes you more disreputable in future. No, it is. It is funny. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe people think that, like, if oh, maybe if oh, it's like the Schrodinger's the Schrodinger's WMD, you open the box, are they there? Or are they not there? <laughs> they were there, <laughs> you know. Um, but 
Yeah, no, it is. It's very interesting. But of course, like, it's very easy to commoditize this critique, this post hoc critique, you know, and it, you know, the Bernie thing was just such a classic. He becomes this sort of cuddly grandpa. When people were calling him like a sex pest a few years before and a misogynist and Bernie bros and all this, you know, destroying Hillary Clinton's campaign. It was amazing. It's just like, yeah. But now that it's not a threat now by seeming like they like him, they can diminish the degree to which they appear to be the ones who did him in. Mm -hmm. That's the trick. That's the trick. And so I think it's wonderful that more people can now clearly see what there is to be critical about in the royal family. I, you know, I only wish that Andrew had inherited. If Andrew had inherited, it would be even more obvious. <laughs> you know, it is funny. So this whole thing about people heckling, getting arrested and stuff. Obviously, this is a terrible thing. But the fact that they are getting arrested says something about the nature of this institution. Um, yeah. Also, the fact that this, it is sort of getting to this... If if this was happening to any other royal, like this level of pageantry, and I, I wonder if they've toned it down because people are not as into it as they would otherwise have been. Like it is, it. I mean, everything's ridiculous in a sense, but you know, it's it's very excessive. And well, you need some, yeah, hats you need, and things. They're like, come on, guys. Yeah. You need some number of people to just have that visceral, what is going on, reaction to it. But then it makes it possible to have a more interesting discussion later. And so we we need some number of rude people at the start to give us give us some space to to have a dialectic between the rude and the sad. Uh, but, you know, for me, I, I, I don't like being rude and just shouting stuff. That's not me. But I, I see that the value of it and importance of it, because then we get to criticize the arrest and criticizing the arrest. And this is the thing. You're always dependent on a certain number of kind of crazy out there people because it's the crazy out there people who will actually put themselves on the line in such a way that they will create the story that then becomes something that you can use to develop something long-term that has value. And we're always indebted to these, to these people who just kind of not to encourage anybody who may be listening to do anything crazy, but we, we do depend to a certain degree on people who are willing to put themselves at a certain amount of risk, uh, people who are willing to cause a little bit of trouble sometimes uh, in ways that you know, might get them arrested. But this is uh, the paranoia. A lot of other people out. Yeah, because this is a sort of a psychotic thing. The paranoia who takes the truth to, let's say, I mean, so even if, even if um, a conspiracy theorist is right about something happening, if they relate to the quote-unquote truth in this paranoid way, they're still a conspiracy theorist because they, they imagine that there is like an undivision amongst the people who are doing something intentionally. Let's say they're doing something for financial reasons, but, you know, it might imagine in the imagination of the paranoid kind of conspiracy theorist that it's like some actual like thought out thing. Most things are kind of accidents. So even if it is actually happening, it's the relationship to the truth. But it's that relationship to the truth, that overinvestment in the truth that does get people to do things. Um, yeah. One of the things that's really hard about mass movements is that you need a certain number of crazy people to actually do the stuff. Yeah. And then you need leadership that is very reasonable so that those crazy people don't cause the movement to do terrible and destructive things. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty when you're trying to do any kind of really you know, radical project 
is getting the balance right between the crazy people and the very reasonable people and keeping the crazy people in the foot soldier role and the reasonable people in the leadership roles. Because what will tend to happen is that the crazy people will use the logic of the movement to usurp the ruling roles and then they will lead the movement into the toilet. No, exactly, exactly. But if you don't have any crazy people, then the movement won't have enough radical action associated with it for it to really have pull. Uh, Eric Hoffer, in his book about mass movements, he makes this point about, um, you know, you need uh, the, the words person, you need the action person, and then you need the practical person. Yeah, and the words person comes up with the theory, which ultimately galvanizes everybody. But the words person isn't going to do anything because the words person is satisfied by saying it in words, right? Then the crazy person, the crazy person will destroy everything, but the crazy person doesn't know how to build anything new to replace what they've destroyed. And then the practical person uh, just wants to get back to some semblance of order. So the practical person would never have been there at the beginning, but comes around in, in, and, and appears on the scene in response to the, the, the destruction. Somehow you've got to move from the word stage to the action stage and then into the practical building stage. And you have to seamlessly make this transition and you can botch it at any of these points. You can fail to, you can keep the words people around for too long and fail to move to action. You can keep the action people around for too long and fail to move to, to practical. You can go to practical too early without having uh, unsettled things enough to really change them. There's so many ways it can go wrong. And part of the trouble is that the, the kind of, you know, Leah Yippee talks about this, the kind of party that can really make a mess of things is almost never the kind of party that can then put things back together again. Mm-hmm. Very true. It's a dilemma. Yeah, it's a dilemma. Well, we're at about an hour, so we're going to wrap up the dilemma on this side. But we're going to go over to the B side where I hear, or a little bird has told me, that Helen wants to talk about something else to do with social media. So perhaps that's what we'll do. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.